And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, October 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, an outside look at security clearance reveals some of the flaws. Plus, this Rocky has been knocking out cancer for decades using statistics. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, more than two years after a sweeping cybersecurity executive order, the White House is proposing new cyber requirements for IT contractors. The rules would set tight deadlines for reporting cyber incidents to the government and require IT contractors to maintain a software bill of materials. For some of the details, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And I imagine that when contractors refer to this SBOM requirement, they're not using the word software. But nevertheless, these rules have been proposed, and so give us some of the details. Sure. There were two rules published in the Federal Register this week. One rule would mandate some incident reporting and information sharing from information technology and operational technology contractors. And then the other rule would aim to standardize cybersecurity requirements for unclassified information systems across government. And as you mentioned, this stems from President Joe Biden's uh, May 2021 cybersecurity executive order that included a major goal to really increase the cybersecurity information that these contractors uh, share with agencies, uh, because obviously a lot of these contractors operate or uh, you know provide systems that critical agency data resides upon. I caught up with Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, to talk a little bit about these new rules. I think the important thing to remember is we put these federal acquisition rules together in the heels of the SolarWinds event and Colonial Pipeline. And this was really us as government saying, here's the things that based on our experience responding to serious incidents that have really been missing for us to be able to do our jobs the way that we need to. All right. And what did he say are the specific requirements for reporting cyber incidents? IT contractors under these rules would have to report cyber incidents to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within eight hours of discovering them and then provide updates every 72 hours thereafter. And the rule recognizes that these initial eight-hour reports might not contain complete information because it takes a long time to really break down what might have happened in a cyber attack or cyber incident. Basically, the government just wants these IT contractors to give them a heads up that something's going on. Here's to Russia again. That's sort of initial notification that something's going on. And that allows us to put pieces together and put the threat picture together at the speed that we need to to address our adversaries. I mean, again, we were talking about generative AI and the increase in the speed of incidents. We have to have the ability here to get information fast or at least initial notification. All right. So besides reporting, let's say there is an incident on a contractor's network and there's CUI information on there or whatever. What happens after just a report? Yeah, this is where this rule gets a little interesting. It proposes a requirement that would allow CISA, the FBI and the contracting agency to have, quote, full access to applicable contractor information and information systems and to contractor personnel in response to a security incident that is reported by the contractor. And so that's a a pretty significant step that 
the government would be taking. Uh, Jerusha pointed that out as well. He said that they actually want feedback, expect feedback on that specific point of this proposed rule. So that's one aspect of this to watch as well, this access requirement. Sounds like they're going to have a big screen sharing session with the contractor's chief information security officer or something. Let's get to the topic of the software bills of material. I mean, the government has been requiring agencies to have SBOMs for the software that they own, and that requires the contractor's cooperation here. They've got to provide it when you buy the software. What about what do the rules add to that regime? So essentially, it proposes a, re- a new requirement for these I- IT contractors to develop and maintain a software bill of materials for any software that is used in the performance of a contract, regardless of whether there is a security incident. Uh, obviously, these SBOMs are often referred to as software ingredients lists that provide an inventory on the libraries and components and metadata that's associated with a software application. And officials have said these are really critical for understanding whether there might be a vulnerability within their system. So this proposed rule, in addition to the requirement, seeks some feedback on just the methods for collecting SBOMs from contractors, uh, the challenges with developing an SBOM, and how often an SBOM should be updated to account for changes in any software. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties here is that an SBOM is not just a static thing, like a notebook, you know, a three-ring binder with a bunch of text in it. Every time there's a patch, every time there's an update, every time there's a new version, there should be a new software bill of materials. And so it's a living document. I think of the SBOM as more of a process than a thing. Nobody's really developed, I think, the methodology that's best practice for handling SBOMs. Other cyber requirements the government is proposing here. Yeah, actually, there are going to be some future proposals coming out. Uh, DeRussia said there's going to be one regarding the broader application of SBOM requirements across government, not just necessarily these information and communications technology contractors, as well as there's going to be some reforms to the Federal Risk Authorization and Management Program, FedRAMP, uh, that's used to authorize cloud services on government. So there's some more rules coming down the pike. The comments on these proposed regulations that we've been talking about today are due by December 4th. Uh, So there's a lot going on here when it comes to IT contracting and cybersecurity requirements here in the next couple of months. Jerusha said that he hopes to get a lot of feedback on these proposals. We know that we're going to get it largely right, but not all the way right. And we want it to be all the way right. And we're, we're listening to that feedback and implementing it. We're also not going to sit still. We're going to do stuff that's uncomfortable, and that's going to continue to happen because it's the only way to make progress, and it's the only way to get more secure. And we will find our way along that path to the optimal path. Commenting, then, is now open on these rules officially. And as you mentioned, contractors or anybody can have until December 4th to make comments. That's right, December 4th. And and then that doesn't mean that these rules are effective afterward. They're proposed rules, meaning that there will be uh, some ingestion from government when all these comments come in, and, and then they'll have to go out and finalize these rules somehow based on that. And since you have attended the rollout of these rules, any industry feedback you've been able to garner yet, Justin? Well, I think one aspect of this that might be positive for contractors that, that I'm hearing so far is standardizing contractor cybersecurity requirements across the board. That's one aspect of these rules. Uh, that's one goal of these rules uh, because you know a lot of agencies have their own processes for different cyber requirements and these rules don't necessarily purport to take all of those away 
but at least it provides some standard contract clauses that no matter whether you're going to commerce or state or wherever, you could expect to see these show up. And these are for any contractor doing business with the government or just IT contractors or cybersecurity vendors? The idea is that if they're connected to the government in some way or hold government data, then they would have to be subject to these rules? These pertain to information system contractors, contractors that furnish information systems to the government. So that's a narrower slice of the federal technology contracting community. But it does require to a whole heck of a lot of contractors who provide some pretty critical IT systems to the government. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this Rocky has been knocking out cancer for decades using statistics. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The work of our next guest has spanned 40 years and has helped save lives. For that work at the NIH, he's a finalist for the Paul Volcker Career Achievement Award from the Partnership for Public Service. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the chief of the Statistical Research and Applications Branch at the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Rocky Foyer. So I founded and I currently lead a consortium of simulation modelers. I'll explain what that is. Actually, for the last 23 years, we have over 200 investigators at at over 30 academic institutions, and it's called the Cancer Intervention and Surveillance Modeling Network, or CISNET for short. And it has really fundamentally changed how U.S. cancer screening guidelines are developed. So we've helped to support the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. That's an independent panel of experts in evidence-based medicine sponsored by ARC to set and revise uh, screening recommendations for lung, breast, colorectal, and prostate cancer. So, for example, we helped support the task force in a recent draft recommendation to start breast cancer screening at age 40 instead of 50, and a final recommendation for colorectal cancer screening to start at age 45 instead of 50. And so you have the task force and CISNET to think of, thank if your doctor tells you to get a colonoscopy five years earlier than you would have otherwise. And it is really a good thing. Before CISNET, screening recommendations were based on what was called evidence reviews. These are systematic reviews of all known studies. But direct evidence from studies wouldn't be sufficient to distinguish all the relative benefits and harms of a very large number of possible screening regimens. That's age to start screening, age to stop screening, how often you should be screened. And that sometimes comes to hundreds of different combinations. You couldn't do studies on all those combinations. So population decision modeling, we simulate millions of people's individual lives. We simulate the year they were born and what risk factors they were exposed to. For example, men born in the 1920s, many of whom fought in World War II, when they handed out cigarettes to the GIs, had the highest smoking rates of any generation of Americans. So they had higher lung cancer screening rates. And then if and at what age did a cancer start to develop in somebody's body, when the cancer would have caused uh, when the cancer would have caused symptoms and been diagnosed in the absence of screening, what type of treatment they would get, and what age they would die of either their cancer or some other cause. And then over this, we superimpose many different screening schedules. 
on their lives to see how things might have turned out differently. These are kind of called counterfactual situations. What if your life, what if you didn't have screening? What if you had screening that started at 40? What if 50? What if you had it every year? What if you had it every other year? And then we accumulate all these results and determine the set of screening schedules that produce the most benefit in terms of lowering death rates and the fewest harms, for example, false positive screening results per number of screens conducted. So when I started this consortium, I knew that simulation models could potentially be very valuable in this area, but they really had a serious credibility issue in some circles. Independently developed simulation models taking on the same problem often resulted in radically different results that were just very difficult to reconcile because there were so many complex and subtle differences between the models. So people felt, okay, you get whatever result you want. And this greatly hurt the credibility of these models. So in CISNET, we took a different approach. It's a collaborative group of modelers for each cancer site, multiple with multiple independent models for each cancer site. But then they work together and tackle the same problems in a very systematic way. They share common inputs and produce a common set of outputs, and they get to understand each other's models. So when the results are similar, it brings real credibility to the results. And when they differ, the reasons for these differences can be systematically evaluated. So this approach greatly improved the credibility of this type of modeling, and it's not only become a critical tool in developing new screening guidelines, but they're also used in other ways, for example, to understand the contribution of past advances in prevention, screening, and treatment to national cancer trends. And to project cancer rates into the future as a function of the uptake of some of the newest advances And then importantly, studying the sources of health disparities in cancer rates and what might be done to reduce them. So this consortium has really, yeah, changed the game a little bit in terms of screening guidelines and other ways to evaluate uh, at the population level what's occurring and why it's occurring and to project into the future. So using this technique of modeling, I'm just curious on what went into the models themselves. Was it data that you all gathered from certain cancer sites or numerous amounts of cancer sites, and then you were able to replicate the results, and that's what you're saying added to the credibility because it was showing that, okay, yes, if we do X, then Y happens every time sort of deal? Yes. Well, first of all, if the models got the same answers, you know, then we feel that way. But we use every possible data source, population-based cancer registry, and I could talk a little bit more about that, is the backbone of the research. But we use, we use national surveys of screening rates and, smoke, and to, smoking rates. We have something called a smoking history generator. We use national surveys from 1965 to the present to reproduce by birth cohort smoking histories of individuals when they started, when they stopped, how many cigarettes they, and that's an input into the models. We use screening studies because they kind of what's called dip into the preclinical cancer, and uh, we could see how fast and cancers are growing before they become symptomatic and how many people. We also use autopsy studies. There's a number of studies where people die of other causes, and then they might like biopsy their colon very closely and see how many of these people have polyps, so precancerous lesions, how many have colorectal cancer. That's been done for prostate cancer and other cancers. So we use every possible data source. And then we, we, yeah, we calibrate, it's called calibrate the models based on that. And then in the end run, 
maybe there's a new trial that occurs and we use the models to see if we could predict what the trial showed or if we could predict national trends and rates and then we could decompose those rates so we we look on and on and on for for you know different all the different data sources and what the models do is sort of synthesize all the data and then the comparative modeling because people could take different approaches and get different you know different results but when they come together or if they don't come together because we're working together closely we could understand the differences between the models Gotcha. Okay. And those discoveries that you talked about, you know, lowering the uh, recommendations for screenings of colon cancer, things of that nature. Have there been any population-based discoveries that you all have made through these modeling systems? So, yes. For, just for example, in lung cancer screening, we use a criteria for if you're eligible for lung cancer screening. We don't screen everybody. We want to sm- screen mostly fairly heavy smokers because uh, because and we use a criteria called pack years how many years did you smoke times how many packs a day you smoked and african american individuals tend to have similar pack years to white individuals but they tend to start a little bit later in life they they don't initiate at the same time and their cessation is usually a little bit older so they might have the same pack years but it's shifted to an older age and we know from different studies that if you accumulate those pack years at a little bit at an older age, even though you have the same pack years as somebody else, you have a higher risk of lung cancer. And the lung cancer screening recommendations didn't take that into account, so it created a health disparity. So what the, the new round of lung cancer screening recommendations, they lowered the threshold for being eligible for lung cancer screening to fewer pack years to accommodate you know, in general more people, but but especially African-American individuals who might have the same pack years as somebody else, but have a higher risk because they accumulated those pack years at a higher age. So that's an example of very, just very careful study of the population-based data and then how it translates into something like screening recommendations. You all factored in advancements in treatments and screening procedures. I'm wondering what you think of advancements in in screening technologies or the data accumulation technologies. Do you f- foresee a future where you're having even more factors coming in that you're able to make the model even more predictive and more accurate? Well, yeah, let me let me just talk a little bit about our population-based cancer registries and how that data has radically improved over time. So cancer registries, that part of the program I work on collates the population-based cancer registry. Cancer registries collect data on every cancer that occurred in a defined geographic region. It's usually a state and really form the backbone of population-based cancer statistics. And when I first started at the National Cancer Institute in 1987, our registries covered only about 10% of the U.S. population. And today, the National Cancer Institute and the Centers for Disease Control collectively have registries covering the entire U.S. population. Dr. Eric Rocky Foyer, the chief of the Statistical Research and Applications Branch at the National Cancer Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with interviews with all of our Service to America finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Fiscal 24 does start on a continuing resolution, but contractors have lots of opportunities. 
But first, an outside look at security clearance reveals some of the flaws. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Last spring, when an Air National Guard member was found to have leaked secrets to the Discord website, it raised questions about how he got and kept his security clearance. My next guest spent three months looking at security clearance and found quite a few flaws. Raw Story reporter Alexandria Jacobson joins me now. Ms. Jacobson, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And as your story points out, the clearance process is undergoing a kind of lengthy transformation. A few years ago, it moved out of the Office of Personnel Management and back to the Defense Department. They're trying to build a new system to report it, continuous monitoring and all these things. And these have been reported by GAO. What were you looking at and what did you find that we may not know about security clearance? So as you mentioned, back in April, as I'm sure everyone remembers, when the leak happened out of the Massachusetts Air National Guard with the low-level airman Jack Tajira, that really just prompted us to look at how could someone like that get through the vetting system and fall through the cracks. So around that time, we actually came across a report from clearance jobs that surveyed facility security officers who are responsible for tracking people with security clearances. And what that report showed was As much as 28% of the people surveyed, their companies, their agencies, these contractors were still tracking people with consumer grade spreadsheets. So very unsecured practices and even worse, as much as 2% were using pen and paper. So that was shocking to us to hear in 2023 that people who have access to our nation's secrets, their information is not being held in a secure way. So That was really the impetus for the story, and we wanted to confirm that this is actually happening. Where is this happening? And so, indeed, we were able to, through the three-month investigation on Raw Story, really talk to a lot of folks in the government currently, former employees, national security experts who said that this is indeed still a problem that happens. It tends to happen at the local federal agency level, as well as with contractors. So this, the government trusted workforce 2.0, as you mentioned, this reform effort is certainly making strides to have a more consolidated system that everyone is using to vet and track their security cleared personnel. But where the breakdown seems to still be happening is that local level, smaller contractors might have additional internal systems that they're using that the government isn't privy to track folks with security clearances. Sure. In the case of Teixeira, I guess on a technical standpoint, he passed all of the tests that are in place to get security clearance. He was American. He didn't have any foreign ties. But there were clues to his nature that might have been found in other means, which we understood was supposed to be part of this total look at someone, which is I guess he posted odd stuff on social media. That no one picked up? That's right. And so so definitely we started the investigation looking at these old school practices. And then as I talked with experts, we learned about some other areas that are missing in the system. So publicly available online information or social media is not regularly and consistently used in the vetting process. So as you just referenced with Tajira, he had, you know, after the fact, reporting came out that he had frequently posted about violence, racist beliefs, mistrust of the government, which certainly would be a red flag for someone going for a security clearance for their job. So when I talked to the government, they told me that indeed, since 2016, there is the option to be able to investigate someone's publicly available information. 
but it's just not consistently enforced. So some agencies might do it across the board. Some might not do it at all. And others might do it just if something gets flagged. And then with the new reform effort, Trusted Workforce 2.0, a big part of that is called continuous vetting. So that means that there's an automated process where once someone has a clearance, their information is being run against public records, arrest reports, credit reports, et cetera. But that does not include social media. Currently, it's a very manual process that's tedious and isn't included in that process. We're speaking with Alexandria Jacobson. She's an investigative reporter with the Raw Story site. And then I guess maybe you probably found also that the criteria might need to be updated because someone who could be racist or someone who could be a communist or something. I mean, you know, we've got the Chelsea Manning case going back a number of years. Those aren't, well, maybe communism is, but a lot of those things are not specifically prohibited for someone getting security clearance on the justification that, well, it doesn't matter what they think privately as long as they don't give up secrets. And it sounds like there's a disconnect between perhaps what people might think and their propensity to violate their clearance that they've been granted. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in in reality, experts, the government says it's hard to predict, you know, every single person that might be a bad actor or someone that yeah, they can have their private thoughts and are they actually going to act on it? From what I've learned in my reporting is that by not including this publicly available information in the search that could tip off the government to people that might actually act on these beliefs, that's a really big red flag and potential information that the government is missing out on. Plus, it still takes a long time to get security clearance and both agencies and contractors say they need people to just continue the work of the government. That's an ongoing issue also. Absolutely. Back in 2017, there was a backlog of investigation processes that took as much as two to three years for someone to get a clearance. So that has certainly much improved, but it still definitely takes months. People looking for clearances need to fill out a hundred plus page form. It's a really intensive process. And as with much of the experts I talked to said, there is still a talent problem with having enough people to vet those that need security clearances. So there's definitely a bit of that tension there as well to making sure there's enough folks that can do the actual process of checking folks thoroughly and quickly. And I want to get back to the attitudes and expressed views of people, because I imagine the government people that you spoke with mentioned the same thing, that what is it that should disqualify you from security clearance, even though it might be repugnant in some other domain? Should that be a disqualifier provided you'll keep a secret, well, if you're a bigot, so what? I mean, not to justify bigotry, but that question needs to be answered, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in general, the government says they won't touch password protected information. That's certainly a line they won't cross. And people with security clearances I spoke to, some don't feel comfortable with having their social media evaluated in in the process. And I I think that that's certainly a common concern. But yeah, it, it seems that they're needs to be a more consistent and clear way of evaluating this information and what would disqualify someone. So as we spoke about those, I think it's the major red flags that when people talk about wanting to exercise violence and mistrust of the government and things like that. Sure. I guess if you are willing to post those kinds of things about yourself on social media, you might kind of have an exhibitionist tendency to begin with. And then when you get hold of federal secrets... Well, you've really got something to share at that point. That line could be drawn, too, I suppose. 
Absolutely. And, you know, uh, my colleague, Jordan Green, did a, a report on someone who was a neo-Nazi who was in the Marine Corps and had classified documents saved on his computer. So, again, that's someone that you, you certainly would think should not have a security clearance and you would hope would have been caught in the vetting process as well. And what kind of reaction did you get to this story? There's been a, a lot of interest, I think, just in the general public. Some of this information just is very much not transparent or readily available. So I think people are interested to learn about how the vetting process, uh, the, the complications of it, the lack of consistency in some areas. And so, yeah, so it's been really surprising, especially, I'd say, on the old school practices to to still hear that there are contractors and local agencies Using pen and paper is pretty shocking in this day and age. And not too many reporters are interested in the arcana of government operation, but <laughs> arcane as they might be, they still have a big effect on national security or many other public life factors. Absolutely. And yeah, this is a very, very important information. And the folks that I, I spoke with, you know, unfortunately, this they predict that this was going to happen again. And so it's just really trying to get a grasp on, are the reform efforts doing enough? Where are the holes? making sure that they're, they're being attended to. Alexandria Jacobson is a reporter with Raw Story. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Fiscal 24 may be starting on a continuing resolution, but contractors still have lots of opportunities. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Fiscal 2024 started off like most fiscal years with a continuing resolution. The government is still spending, though, and contractors have lots of opportunities. For the top opportunities in the year ahead, we turn to Bloomberg Government Senior Data Analyst Paul Murphy. Paul, good to have you back. Tom, good to be with you again. And many of the opportunities that you point out are actually existing programs, existing contracting vehicles that are not really necessarily impeded by the fact that there's a CR, fair to say? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. That's actually one of the themes you kind of anticipated one of my responses. What we're seeing especially are these multiple iteration contracts, you know, just a few, Alliance 3, Soup 6, CBOSS 2, Protect 2.0. PAX-3, TADS-2, MES-2, IH-2, IHT 2.0. I mean, I think the agencies are showing a commitment to established contracting procedures and contracts that work, contracts that have a history of delivering and are to some degree, you know, kind of protest-free. You know, we've seen delays with significant opportunities this year, you know, on uh, Polaris, on CAOSP-4, and Oasis Plus got hit with a protest in September. So a lot of these self-scoring opportunities are getting hit with protests, I think in part because they're so big and they're really market-defining that companies feel that you know, they have nothing to lose by protesting, and they're having actually some success with it. Now, Alliant 3 unrestricted the GSA's big GWAC with a estimated value per Bloomberg of $75 billion. What about if you're not on Alliant 3, and that's a general services type of IT mm -hmm. contract, then what are your prospects? Well, you know, they added another $25 billion to the ceiling on Alliant last year. And you know, probably a good thing they did because it's been delayed along with you know, a couple of the others. You know, everybody went back to the drawing board to make sure their T's were crossed and their I's were dotted after the uh, Polaris protest. 
but it's a very broad ranging contract. It's, you know, $75 billion ceiling is huge. Although technically it doesn't have a fixed ceiling to technically there's no ceiling. GSA got special dispensation, but based on the pattern of spending over the last several years, we see it as, as, as one of a handful of GWACs that are really market defining. And, you know, if you're a small, uh, well, this is unrestricted, but, you know, for the others that have, you know, small business carve outs, if you're, you know, small, mid-sized firm, you either want to have a slice of this action or you want to be part of teams that, you know, have access to these contract vehicles. So if I'm a contractor, I'm looking ahead to 2024, there's all of these vehicles, the top 10 that you mentioned are, you know, well over $100 billion in ceiling value, and they have different areas that they cover. What should I be thinking about in terms of themes for the government? I mean, the way I look at it, spending breaks down on two basic buckets. One is highly mission-related, and the other is all of the administrative, clerical, housekeeping, just keeping the agency running types of services, mostly some products that are nevertheless big business also. If you would permit me, let me just back up a second and address this issue of the CR. What we're noticing is kind of an increasingly sluggish pace of acquisition development over the last year. It started with debt breach in late May and June. That got resolved, but then we lurched into the budget debate in September you know, there was the threat of the shutdown. We finally got to see a 45-day CR. And I think this is introducing an uncertainty factor with agencies who are reluctant to commit to new awards without full appropriation. For example, you know, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency recently told interested bidders that they'd proceed with their general acquisition process for a $3.5 billion opportunity to prevent the deployment of, of weapons of mass destruction. And DITRA said, the, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency sponsoring the contract, they said that, you know, we're going to go ahead with the acquisition, but not with a final RFP until we're sure we have funds. And so right now, they've pushed the RFP into the next year, and they're just waiting to see what kind of resolution there is in Congress. So I think one of the things <laughs> companies can expect in their planning process is a certain amount of delay. Hopefully, it doesn't result in a shutdown where you know, it has other kinds of implications, economic and, and employment and so forth. But right now, we're kind of in a holding pattern. Funding is locked into rates based on last year's level. So in, in some sense, you know, things like Alliant 2 and Soup 6 that would continue these opportunities, there's perhaps no reason to delay, you know, for budget reasons, the acquisition cycle. But as far as making new awards in these contracts, you know, there'll be people using these contracts, agencies using these contracts will have their hands tied, you know, just, uh, you know, like all the other agencies. We're speaking with Paul Murphy. He's senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. And so the themes this year. Transformation. The agencies, you know, we have about 40 percent of the opportunities are IT and they account for 70 percent of the dollars. And so we're seeing a lot of the latest technology being incorporated into a range of opportunities. You know, AI, 5G, 6G, quantum computing, cyber encryption, high speed networks, sensors satellite communications. These are becoming integrated parts of a lot of opportunities. And it's all kind of reflected in the grades that you saw with the release of the latest, you know, Fatara 16.0 report. Agencies are getting pretty good grades by and large on IT this go around. They're having trouble transitioning off of uh, networks to the new telecommunications contract GSA is promoting. But otherwise, you know, IT is really getting baked into a lot of these, even facilities management contracts. What would be some good strategies then for contractors to pursue to try to keep their revenue levels up? Because we don't know what the final spending levels will be, and there is still that prevailing Republican gambit to take the levels down a little bit. 
and that's going to come out of procurement because they're not going to lay off federal employees. So that's not where the cost cutting will come. It's likely to come from procurement. Those are the two big buckets of discretionary spending. But in theory, I mean, any government program that is directly or indirectly administered through you know, contracts could be, the spending on those programs could be affected. So what we're recommending to our clients is, A, you, know, you need market intelligence. You need to know, are the agencies moving ahead with this procurement or are they not? You need to know uh, specific terms from your contract officer. You know, is your work essential or is it unessential? Are your employees going to be expected to come in on furlough or are they possibly essential? Is there money in the pipeline available to even pay them? I mean, some contracts, big contracts, you know, defense contracts get advanced funding when they have to buy supplies or, you know, hire up to, you know, add a scientist to do some R&D. In some of these big contracts, there's already advanced funding. And so it's really kind of unique contract by contract, agency by agency, you know, what's essential, what's not. A lot of the success in navigating these kind of tumultuous waters over the next few weeks is going to be based on communications with contract officers, contract administrators, watching the intelligence, seeing which steps the agencies are going to make even as they express some uncertainty in in the ultimate level of funding that they're going to get. Now, the continuing resolution at 45 days was a pretty long one, a month and a half which takes a month and a half out of the time you would have to develop new programs once a final appropriation comes through, if it does in fact come through it after 45 days. So it sounds like because we don't have a shutdown and therefore you can talk to the government, this would be a good time to get your government counterpart if you're a contractor and have discussions about what you would like to launch as new once the new money Mm -hmm. comes through. Use the fact that there's no shutdown so that when the appropriations come through, you're ready because it will right. be a shortened runway, if you will. Absolutely. And see if there's any you know, assent money that's deemed essential that can be obligated against your contracts that may have, maybe it could be reprogrammed or maybe it was there. Maybe it's a multi-year contract, like a lot of R&D and construction contracts, you know, have multiple years. Some agencies like the Indian Health Service are actually, you know, funded for the next year. So there is, you know, money on some contracts available. I mean, IHS has you know, a lot of big uh, health modernization opportunities uh, moving forward. So you need to understand every contract in your pipeline or every opportunity in your pipeline, every contract you hold, you know, what is the status of that? And just, you know, run through all your contacts at the agencies and make sure that you have updated information and you're constantly watching the intelligence. Yeah, I think that's going to be, you know, the way it's five. Anything else we need to know? Well, two quick things. One is a lot of, uh, particularly the defense uh, technology contracts are emphasizing global networks, integration, a lot of these opportunities like Air Force Mission Partner Environmental, Army TADS, and Ditra's Citric 4, they're feeding into this JADC2 global network environment. The other thing is we're seeing a lot of opportunities that would have increased ceilings like DHS PAX3, Ditra's Citric 4, VA's IHT 2.0. They're reconfiguring the contracts. They're raising the ceiling, adding vendors. Paul Murphy is Senior Data Analyst at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Uh, Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Department is preparing for a new era of cyber warfare driven by artificial intelligence. The Army's Cyber Center of Excellence is already using AI defensively to watch for cyber threats around the clock. 
Center officials see AI, though, as the key to faster decision-making both on and off the battlefield. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the center's director of information advantage, Colonel John Agnello. Uh, The easy place to use AI is continuous monitoring. So what we're actually kind of looking at right now is Army Cyber has brought in various contract organizations to come and show what their technologies are and how can they use those technologies for continuous monitoring. So continuous monitoring to help defend cyber hygiene is it's low threat. So how can we use AI where it's a little more simple and you don't have a major risk or threat associated with it, that's the first way I think we're really looking at using it holistically for cyber defense. I just wanted to follow up first on your point about just AI as a tool for enabling decision-making. Can you give me some examples of how AI is a useful tool in the toolbox for uh, arriving at those decisions better, faster, cheaper? You actually you, you hit the nail on the head. It's better, faster, cheaper. So really the way we're kind of looking at it is the concept of if – Every piece of information that's on the battlefield is its own individual node. And we take every one of those individual nodes and they interact with each other uh, and they affect each other. They all merge into the concept of some type of decision space where you've got speed and, and accuracy. And you really want to make sure that, you know, we want our data to be faster and more accurate than our adversaries. So we can have some type of information advantage versus our adversaries. And really what we're looking at is how do you how do you use AI for that? And I think that, you know, that type of neural network is really where we're going with it. One other point to focus on here, we hear from DOD across the enterprise that AI readiness is a point of contention, a point of concern. You know, I think one of the AI readiness goals, at least for DOD across the board, is AI readiness by 2025, 2027, I think is another milestone out there. As far as your particular corner of things over at Army Cyber Center of Excellence, you know, what does AI readiness mean to you and what are the key milestones to get there? AI readiness. So let's say, how do you use it to be more successful. You know, we talked about using it in the information space against social media and proactively versus reactively. I think when we talk about overall AI readiness that, you know, the Defense Department and the U.S. government writ large has all come up, everyone has their AI task forces to try and find what those new technologies are and how we can apply it. I think really the bottom line is how do we apply it today and where do we need to apply it to be successful? And you said something that usually comes up in these conversations, how as Army deploys AI, human in the loop is always very important and just, uh, I think, a grounding principle for any future use of AI. Can you speak a little bit more about the value of that human in the loop and why it's so essential that there's a human operator uh, making these decisions at the end of the day? I said in the talk about Skynet, people see, people automatically think when you think AI, you think Skynet, oh, world's coming to an end. Really, the bottom line is, is that, you know, we use AI to do those more menial tasks which allow a human to actually be that button pusher, you know, whatever that button pushing may be. It may be something from defending a network to sending a tweet to dropping a bomb, and it could be anything in from that full spectrum there. AI is really helps us make a decision, but still the human has to be the one, the commander has to be the one to make that overall decision. Switching gears here a little bit, as far as the search for talent when it comes to AI, cyber talent is one of those things that we always hear is always in demand. And I I think if you go one degree further here, AI is also a place where the demand for talent, the demand for that expertise is pretty acute as far as getting people on board or just even recognizing the people who have that AI aptitude. What is uh, Center of Excellence looking to do there? 
Oh, that's a great question. So really what we're kind of doing is we started, we, they started a new warrant officer curriculum and officer curriculum talking data engineers, data managers and data engineers, so and data scientists. So, you know, we want to look at understanding that we are a data-centric army. So how do you find individuals that are tech savvy to understand that data, apply that data, and be the engineers to actually write that, write those scripts, write those algorithms to apply it. So we have fully embraced it. We actually have built new MOSs and uh, specialties for warrant officers to specifically look at AI and data science. One thing that came up in this conversation with this panel is It comes up pretty often when we talk about AI, but it's the information, the disinformation side of things. More broadly, AI trustworthiness, I think, is kind of a thing that people discuss when they talk about AI for quite some time. In terms of making sure that these AI tools are reliable, that they're producing accurate results when they're being used, what is the Cyber Center of Excellence looking to do there to make sure that these tools are accurate when they need to be? I think that goes back to data-centric. We talked about on the panel that you really need to have some type of supervisor learning. So the idea of as we continue to use a data set and that data set is what makes those algorithms come to the answer that you want, you have to continue to nurture and you continue to supervise that data and and determine that you have the right data, accurate data, that can continue to modify what that solution is. So really the bottom line is, is just supervising the data. You know, someone used the example of saying it's a baby, you have to continue to mold and build that baby and, and make sure that it, it comes to fruition. So I think that's really the bottom line. So at the end of the day, it seems like some basic blocking and tackling with the data, making sure it's of a reliable you know, maturity and that it's able to uh, train the AI in a way that's, that makes it trustworthy in the first place. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have to continue to train it. You got to continue to uh, modify it, make sure that it's accurate, make sure it's up to date, and make sure that you have you're asking the right questions too. I think that's one of the biggest problems we lose in data science is what exactly is the requirement and what's the question you want to ask that data. That allows you to apply that algorithm, that um, analytic, to actually allow that AI to kind of solve that the answer for you. Cyber is a realm where you guys are always staying on top of the next thing over the horizon. But, you know, how do you get everyone on board to understand the value of AI, just both the threat side of AI and the opportunity side of AI and and get everyone to recognize just what a pivotal kind of period we are with this emerging technology? Bottom line is that it's not going away. AI is here. It's continued to get refined. Those type of technologies, we want everyone to embrace it use the technology. One of the big things we really got to look at is how do you educate seniors of what AI is and how you can use it? Because where we, I think we may fail a little bit here and there is that at least in the military, senior leaders that, you know, you've been doing, you've been doing this for 20 or 30 years, you, you, you follow your gut instinct. And, you know, if you can have something provide you a, a good recommendation, you don't have to follow it, but at least it gives you a quicker option to make a decision. That's really, I think, the way we want to look at that. Colonel John Agnello, Director of the Information Advantage at the Army's Cyber Center of Excellence, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 